Well, dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 13, verses 7 to 19. Only we covered verses 7 to 14 last week, and I've decided to put verses 18 and 19 with the text for next week, so that this morning our text is actually just Hebrews 13, verses 15, 16, and 17. Now, last week in verses 7 to 14, we considered three ways to ensure that we are among those who live by faith. Three habits of faith, if you will. First was remember your leaders, imitating their faith in the confidence that Jesus is the same for you as he was for them. Second, strengthen your heart. By finding grace as you draw near to God, fully convinced in the sufficiency of the cross. And thirdly, embrace the way of the cross by going to Jesus outside the camp, knowing that whatever you must give up in this life to be with him will be worth it. Now it is with these habits of faith in place, and indeed with the entire shape of the teaching of Hebrews in view, that we come to verses 15 to 17 this morning. What we have before us are the final exhortations the pastor gives his hearers in this book. What he leaves them with in the end, before his closing benediction personally written and his final greeting that we'll take up next week. I see two things in these verses that the pastor emphasizes. First, he emphasizes their offering. And second, he emphasizes their obedience. Offering and obedience, those are the two simple headings under which we'll take up verses 15 to 17. Our daily offering is the subject of verses 15 and 16 and our deliberate obedience, the subject of verse 17. We begin then with our daily offering in verses 15 and 16. Through him, then, the pastor writes, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The pastor says in these verses that we are to offer our lives continually, brothers and sisters. What our whole lives are to be is a sacrifice of praise to God. That sacrifice has two aspects to it that are necessarily interconnected. We are to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God with our lips and in our lives. And we'll look at both of those two things in a moment. But before we do, before we look at what the pastor says the sacrifice of praise is, beginning in verse 15b, I want to take some time on verse 15a because we're likely to read quickly past this part of the verse on our way to the definition that's found in the rest of verse 15 and verse 16. And I think 
we're especially likely to read quickly past just the first two words of verse 15. There the pastor says we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God through him. Through him. Such a simple phrase. But how critical it is that we dwell there for a minute or two. Because those words need to be given their full weight. When the pastor says, through him, he's calling to mind everything his sermon has said about him, about Jesus. The words through him here mean because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done and because of where Jesus is now. In short, because of everything I've taught you in this sermon, that's why we can do this. That's why we can continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. We can't read the words through him at the end of the book of Hebrews and not pour into it the content of all the pastor has been teaching us for two years, brothers and sisters. And so probably just because we're right at the end of Hebrews, I, I just can't help but summarize this somewhat. We can't read the words through him and not think about how he is the son. The son through whom God has spoken in these last days. The son through whom God created the world. The son who helps the offspring of Abraham by partaking of the same flesh and blood that we have in order to do the will of his father to offer himself as the single sacrifice for sins, the sacrifice that accomplishes the full forgiveness of his brothers and sisters, bringing about the reality of the new covenant as he renders the old one that was its shadow obsolete. The Son, who in so doing became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is to say a priest forever. The Son, who as our great high priest has been welcomed back to the heavenly places from which he came, the inner place behind the curtain, the true tent that the Lord set up, where now he sits at the right hand of the Father, where his presence as our high priest is our constant intercession before God Almighty. The Son, whose presence in that place purifies it, in preparation for our arrival there, because he is our forerunner, the eternal God-man, who has made possible in the world to come the realization of the purpose for which humanity was created in the first place, to reign as the image of God in creation, to live forever in the eternal Sabbath rest of God, to dwell in the city that has foundations, to come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, to salvation, life with God in a place. 
We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, the pastor said last week in verse 10 of chapter 13. Of course we do. For as chapter 2, verse 10 puts it, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons and daughters to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews tells us this is who we are. Sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters in God's house, who partake of Christ's altar and therefore live in expectation of the city to come. Of course it's through him that we offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. It's all through him that any of this is possible and real in history and real in our lives. So, dear friends, if you've been with us through Hebrews and you have come to understand more about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and where Jesus is now and the implications all of that has for your life and your salvation, then here's what happens. You give thanks. Or, as chapter 12, verse 28 puts it, we are grateful. Grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What possible other response could we have to all of this? Praise, gratitude, thanksgiving. These are the ways in which we respond to such things when we've begun to grasp them. When we've been enlightened as the hearers of Hebrews had been. And that response of thanksgiving is exactly what we're talking about here in verses 15 and 16. Because in this passage, that thanksgiving is called a sacrifice of praise to God. Now, I mean this very technically, so watch this. Every week in Hebrews, there's been something I've learned that either I never knew or I didn't fully understand before. I hope that's been the case for you. Here's the one for this week. Well, here's one of the things for this week. Do you know where the sacrifice of praise language comes from? I didn't. But, of course, it comes from the Old Testament, and like every other Old Testament reference or allusion in Hebrews, it comes from the Septuagint, that is, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Specifically, the sacrifice of praise is taken from Leviticus chapter 7, verse 12. You at home may want to turn to Leviticus chapter 7 in your Bibles to see this. If you want to, please do. Beginning in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 11, the Lord gives instructions through Moses regarding peace offerings. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 11 says, And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. And then in verse 12 of Leviticus 7, we're focused in on a specific kind of peace offering. The kind that's offered for a thanksgiving. That's how verse 12 begins. If he offers it, that is, if one offers the peace offering for a thanksgiving, 
Now, according to one scholar I read this week, the thank offering described here is, quote, the highest form of peace offering under the old covenant. And what's critical to see is that this superlative thank offering, like all other peace offerings, could only be made after other offerings had been presented so that the worshiper was clean. You can see this in Leviticus 7. After the description of what the peace offering for a thanksgiving is to be and what accompanies it and how it is to be consumed, all of that is described in verses 12 to 18 of Leviticus 7. Verse 20 says, But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, which is what they were supposed to do, they were supposed to eat from these offerings, but it says then that one who does that while an uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. Meaning that the peace offering for a thanksgiving can only be given after other offerings, such as the offerings for sin and guilt that are described earlier on in Leviticus chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7, after such offerings had already been made. Because, no big surprise, it's no good bringing a peace offering for thanksgiving to the Lord when you're not actually at peace with the Lord, right? When you're unclean in His sight. The whole point of the peace offering for a thanksgiving is to express gratitude for salvation and for the gifts God has given. It's not an offering to make atonement for sin. It's an offering to express thanks for the atonement for sin and the resulting peace that the giver experienced before the Lord. And so there we are in Leviticus 7, verse 12, and it says, If he offers it, that is the peace offering, for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice. Those words are the key. The thanksgiving sacrifice. He shall offer with that unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. Our focus is not on what is to be offered with the sacrifice. Our focus is on those words, the thanksgiving sacrifice itself, because that's the phrase that the pastor uses in Hebrews 13, verse 15. Now, in Leviticus 7, verse 12, the ESV says thanksgiving sacrifice because that's how the Hebrew text reads. You know that. The English Bible translates the Old Testament from the Hebrew manuscripts. But in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Bible that the pastor writing Hebrews used, that phrase is rendered as sacrifice of praise. That's what the pastor's drawing on in our passage. So let's bring it home. Why is it that we can continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, a peace offering for a thanksgiving, a thanksgiving sacrifice? Why can we continually offer that to God in our lives? 
Well, dear friends, this is Hebrews. You know why. It's because now the single offering for sin has been made. By his single offering, Jesus Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The whole point is that you are clean, brothers and sisters. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, you don't need to make any more offerings for sin and guilt. It's all thanksgiving sacrifices all the time in our lives. Get it? You and I have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10 verse 19 says. We can draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The shadow system of the law has been fulfilled. We don't need any more sin offerings. So what then happens to the peace offering for thanksgiving, the sacrifice of praise that came after offerings for sin and guilt? How is that now experienced as a new covenant reality? And the answer is, in our continual offering, not of an animal accompanied by yummy sounding loaves of bread, like it is in Leviticus, but of our whole lives. Our very lives are the new covenant sacrifice of praise. In the light of the peace we have with God, the peace God has made possible through his son, in light of the new covenant reality of the cross plus the spirit in our lives, we offer to him our very lives. So quickly look at these two parts. First, we offer him our lips. The pastor says first that our sacrifice of praise to God is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now we'll see more fruit in verse 16, but we can't miss the fact here that included in the fruit, part of our sacrifice of praise is lips that acknowledge his name. Now the word translated acknowledge there could be rendered confess, as in lips that confess his name. And that might be helpful, in fact, because the Greek word in is here the verbal counterpart of a noun that's been translated as confession elsewhere in Hebrews. We saw this in chapter 3, verse 1, where the pastor says, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. We saw it in chapter 4, verse 14, where he says, Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. More recently in chapter 10, verse 23, we read, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. When the pastor says we are to praise God through lips that acknowledge his name, I think he means something rather specific. I think he means we're to continue speaking our confession of faith. We're to publicly say and affirm that Jesus Christ is the heart of our confession. That we believe he is, in fact, all the pastor writing Hebrews and all the rest of the scriptures say he is. 
and that he has brought about the reality of salvation that's the focus of our entire lives. His is surely the name the pastor refers to at the end of verse 15. It's the name that the pastor referred to at the very beginning of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 4. The name that Jesus, the ascended man, has inherited. The name that is more excellent than that of the angels in the heavenly places. The name Son. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, Hebrews 1 verse 5 said. As we then continually make this confession here in the church and out there in the world, whatever the cost and whatever the consequences may be of doing so, we acknowledge the incarnated, crucified, resurrected, and ascended Son of God, giving Him thanks and praise for all He has done. His name is to be on our lips always. Those who know us should know us as His followers because we speak regularly of Him. What's more, our whole manner of speaking will either confess or deny His name. Do others, not just others in the church, but our family and friends and co-workers and even strangers we meet, do they experience us as offering the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name? It's a critical question to ask. Of course, it won't be just in what we say that we give thanks to the Lord. It will also be in how we live how does the general thanksgiving put it again? We said it just a few minutes ago that with truly thankful hearts, and note that, that with truly thankful hearts, we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives. Where do you think this comes from? That's what we're seeing right here in Hebrews 13. Verse 16 of our text continues, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The connection is clear. Such sacrifices are part of what our sacrifice of praise entails. We aren't far here from what we considered two weeks ago in verses 1 to 6, where the controlling thought was, let brotherly love continue. Here we see the life of faith boils down to its most essential expression, love of God and love of neighbor. Doing good suggests kind deeds. As an expression of thanks and praise to God, Considering all he has done for us, there is to be an eagerness to act kindly towards others, to work for the spiritual and temporal benefit of other people. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, the teaching of Jesus put in other words. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets, Jesus said. Among other passages, Jesus must have had the famous words of Micah 6, verse 8 in view. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness 
and to walk humbly with your God. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6, 9 and 10. Of course, to do good is more than to think well or to wish good things for others. For as James reminds us in James chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? No, what the pastor has in mind are concrete actions that flow from a heart that has been freed up to love. Which moves us into the second summary way in which our lives are to be a sacrifice of praise to God expressed in love for others. Do not neglect to share what you have, the pastor says. The word there is simply koinonia. That word is often translated fellowship, but in the early church, koinonia had clear implications regarding possessions. What the pastor urges here is a readiness to show generosity to those in need, to give freely of our wealth because we love others more than our money. It's the practical outworking of the exhortation we considered two weeks ago in verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Because only then will we be able to let brotherly love continue in the concrete way envisioned in verse 16. All of it part of our sacrifice of praise to God. That was all having to do with our daily offering. Which brings us then to the second emphasis of our passage this morning, and that is our deliberate obedience. Obey your leaders, the pastor says in verse 17, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Well, there's a whole theology of church leadership in that verse. But rather than explore every nuance, let's make the primary point and then glance at the rest. The primary point is this. Our life of faith, which, as we've seen all through Hebrews, means a life of faithful endurance. Our life of faithful endurance is, by God's design, to be lived in relation to the teaching and modeling and admonishment and correction of faithful leaders in the church. The pastor's focus here has not radically shifted. He's still focused on the same thing he's been focused on all along, the need for the recipients of Hebrews to endure, to live by faith. And he says, essentially, running the race set before you includes obeying your leaders and submitting to them. Because doing so is the way God has intended for you to persevere 
in faith all the way to the end. So let's talk about this. We've already seen that the kind of leaders that the pastor has in view here are those who speak the word of God to you, whose way of life is worthy of imitation because they themselves are living lives of obedient faithfulness. We saw that last week when we considered verse 7, where the pastor referred to past leaders in those ways. Now he's talking about their present leaders, but there is a connection, and it's an important one. We are to obey and submit to leaders who are like that, who really do speak the word of God, and who really do live lives of obedient faithfulness. The first term here in verse 17 is important to understand. The verb translated obey is often used of those who have been persuaded to obey rather than simply for obedience to constituted authority. In other words, the point here is that such obedience is an appropriate response to the teaching of God's word. It's not unqualified blanket obedience that the pastor means here. What's envisioned here is far from the concept of leaders as authoritarian rulers over the church and over the lives of its members. What the pastor enjoins is not mindless submission, but persuasion by the leader's biblical instruction. In fact, elsewhere in Hebrews, the same verb introduces conclusions of which the author is convinced on the basis of evidence. For example, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, the pastor says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Well, we feel sure there is translating a different form of the same verb that's in our text this morning. But I think you can see the connection. The point is that when you feel sure about what's being taught by your leaders, then you respond accordingly. You respond with obedience. Now, from that understanding of what's intended by obedience, then, we move over to submit. The word that's used here in Hebrews 13 for submit is unique within the New Testament. That is, this specific word only occurs here in the whole New Testament. So you may not apply what I'm about to say to other contexts that may come to mind regarding the, the idea of submission. According to one Greek lexicon, the verb for submit that's used here in Hebrews 13 verse 17 means to yield to someone's authority. But here again, authority does not imply authoritarianism. Because as the pastor continues, he explains the context of the submission he requires by explaining what authority or what responsibility, really, the leaders have. You see this in the second part of verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, the pastor says, 
for they are keeping watch over your souls. Here we see that the responsibility godly leaders have, which also becomes the reason that we are to submit to them. The pastor wants his hearers to submit because their leaders are doing something of critical importance for them. They're keeping watch over your souls, the pastor says, which means something very specific. The pastor speaks of souls here, not because he means that leaders care about our souls as opposed to our bodies or some such thing. No, the point is that godly leaders have concern for the eternal welfare of their people, of the souls, the immortal spiritual beings who have been entrusted to them. Paul has this in view, for example, when he says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. What's in view here is our eternal welfare. That's what true leaders in the church are constantly focused on. The pastor describes it as keeping watch. That keeping watch language is very significant. It's only a single verb in Greek, but it's a verb that's always used in the New Testament in contexts that refer to eschatological vigilance. In Mark chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Keep awake there is the same verb that's translated keep watch in our text. Luke 21 verse 36 is similar. But stay awake, same verb. Stay awake at all times. Praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, after instructing the Ephesians in verse 13 to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, says in Ephesians 6 verse 18, to that end, keep alert. Same verb, keep alert. With all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. You see, keep awake, stay awake, keep alert, always with an eye towards the coming final day when we'll stand before the Lord. That's what the pastor's talking about here. Your leaders, he says, are doing what they do for you. They're keeping watch, they're alert, they're awake over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's the context in which submission is called for, brothers and sisters. We're talking here about deadly, serious stuff that pertains to the eternal destiny of our very souls. That's when the pastor says, submit, yield to their God-given authority when your leaders are acting from that motivation, which I think clarifies the whole tone of this verse. The pastor simply is not talking here about lots of decisions that have to be made in the church, about all manner of things. 
I mean, different churches have different ways of making decisions. There are trustees and there are deacon boards and there are councils and there are congregational votes. And the pastor's not saying none of that matters. You just have to do what the pastor says. No. The point is that we all need to submit when it comes to our leaders exercising their God-given authority as it relates to the most important thing of all our eternal welfare. Because the point is, godly leaders in the church aren't in this for their own benefit. They're in it for yours. When leaders like those, the pastor describes here, lie awake at night. You know what it is that they're worried about? They're worried about your souls, brothers and sisters. And it's when they have reason to be worried about your souls that they are to teach and to counsel and to admonish and to sometimes rebuke, always on the basis of the word of God and the pastor's saying to his hearers, when that's what's going on, you'd better submit. The task that leaders like this are performing makes them eminently worthy of that submission because they're doing it for your sake and for the Lord. Such leaders don't carry out their oversight for personal gain. But as those who intend to give account to God, not only for themselves, which they will, but for the way they've conducted their ministry, such leaders care deeply for those under their care. The day's coming when they'll give an account to the Lord, and when that day comes, there's going to be two ways in which leaders like this who have faithfully done what the Lord wanted, who kept watch over the souls under their care, there's two ways in which they'll give their account according to verse 17. They'll either do it with joy or they'll do it with groaning. Let them do this, the pastor says, meaning let them give their account in the end. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. Only maybe you just want to cross out groaning. Because if you're like me, that makes it sound like this is the leaders in that day whining about their people, groaning about their people or something like that. And that's not it at all. The word that's translated groaning here is a word that means deep distress. It's often used in the Greek version of the Psalms for the deep distress from which the psalmist cries out to God. It's a deep sorrow, a deep grief that arises like a groaning from the depths of the one who grieves. And the whole reason a leader's final account would be given with groaning is because of the deep sorrow that he or she would feel on that day when someone who was in their care didn't make it in the end. When that leader has to say to the Lord, I did what I could. I instructed. 
and I warned and I sought them out and I called them to repentance. But he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen, Lord. She didn't make it, Lord. You see, this is the wrenching sorrow that leaders like that will feel when they have to give such an account. Do you see the point? The authority of Christian leaders is exercised now in the light of eternity because eternal issues are involved here. That's the context in which the pastor says to his hearers and says to us today, obey your leaders and submit to them. Obviously, as John Calvin observes in his commentary, the pastor's concern in writing Hebrews here is only, quote, is only with those who faithfully exercise their office. Those who have nothing except the title, and indeed those who abuse the title, that is the title of pastor or leader, who abuse the title to destroy the church, deserve little reverence and even less trust. So says Calvin. But when our leaders are faithful, not sinlessly perfect, but faithful, when, like the past leaders mentioned in verse 7, they speak the word of God and live faithfully, then the full weight of the pastor's final exhortations in Hebrews comes to bear. Obey such leaders, he says. Submit to them. For if in that final day your leaders must give their account with groaning, well, as the pastor understatedly puts it, that would be of no advantage to you. One commentator explains it this way. The faithful watchman is not answerable for the disobedient community. But the community that disregards the warnings of the faithful watchman will have to answer for their disobedience to their, not his, disadvantage. And now, dear friends, having concluded his very final exhortations concerning the offering and the obedience of his hearers, the pastor turns to his closing benediction and his personal parting greetings. As always, we'll take them up next week as we conclude our time together in the wonderful book of Hebrews. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.